0: You are listening to You Might Have a Point. Each week, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Brittany King. She is an independent journalist whose work has been published in The Republic, Day the Beast, Tablet Mag, and several other magazines. She's also a featured writer on Medium and is the host of the podcast, American Shade. Brittany King, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So where I like to start off each interview is just asking how would you describe yourself ideologically and how would you describe like the overall ethos that you, or of the approach that you take to your commentary?
1: Huh? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I would say if I had to describe, I've had to answer that question. You don't. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's funny because people have labeled me and heterodox thinker or someone mm-hmm. that has, unorthodox opinions um based on the community i would be in based Mm -hmm. on my exterior being a woman being a black woman etc um but you know what and i actually was taking that on just because i didn't really feel like it was really polarizing in any way i was like yeah i i guess i do i mean i don't mean to just always take the um opposing view so to speak Mm -hmm. or the view that would be um, an anomaly or an outlier within the community I'm in But that seems to happen But now I'm like, I don't know if I want to even claim that That's a label, you know right. Like, I don't want to ha- So, I mean, if someone needed to know, though What is Brittany? How does she approach things? I would actually just say I just try to be as open-minded as I can And never go into something With an assumption of the solution, because Mm -hmm. maybe I actually will be subconsciously trying to get to that answer. So I'm an open minded thinker, critical thinker, objective thinker.
0: Cool. This
1: is best that I got.
0: Yeah. So I'd like to start off by just taking talking about journalism in America from your perspective, just from being a journalist, graduating from NYU and uh, schools of journalism, I think advent of the internet uh, has kind of radically changed a lot of how journalism is done and also just how uh, a lot of local newspapers are either going out of business or significantly in decline. So I guess my question is, how do you think about that um, as a as in your role as a freelance journalist? And how do you relate to like the current state of journalism?
1: The current state of journalism is, I hate to say in a crisis because I think that's kind of like nothing new, mm-hmm. but I think now like when you bring up the internet, it's like everyone in, in a way is their own journalists and right. can be one in a way. But I think because I went to NYU And how much it was instilled in us to be ethical, which, of course, you want to be ethical in any profession. But Mm -hmm. they really drilled that in our minds because it's so easy not to be ethical. It's so easy to be manipulative with with news Mm -hmm. um, and what we report. It's so easy. And when I see. You know, left wing news or right wing news. And I can just see everything, how they cut, like how both of these publications or news outlets could have got the same video, the same story, and just, mm-hmm. you know, contextualize it to fit their narrative or their biases. So for me, as an independent journalist, that's why I am. Um, I feel like a lot of news and <clears throat> journalists are basically PR for a political stance that they're taking. And for me, I'm independent with my profession and how I think and within a political stance. I don't affiliate with being Democrat or Republican. Um, Don't have anything against anyone that does. But for me personally, I don't think I, for me, I can be an independent journalist and be outspokenly um, for the Democrat party. I just Mm -hmm. don't, for me, I don't think that can work. So. That's my approach is to um, stay unbiased as I can. But if my piece or whatever comes out, report comes out, that might lean more right or might lean more left, so to speak, I don't try to fix anything up. If it's the truth, it's the truth and how it Mm -hmm. comes out in the construction of what liberal or conservative looks like in America, it's not up to me. So I just say I'm the PR for the truth. I'm not PR for a side.
0: Yeah, I had Bill share on earlier, and he also reflected on how it's easier as a freelance journalist to not take a particular ideological language. I mean, he identifies as a liberal, but he also, I think, has said that it's easier to be more open-minded. But at the same time, he acknowledged that it was uh, not uh, as easy financially um, because you're not a PR outlet like the the truth doesn't have a much funding. Um, Yeah. Um. So yeah, would you? I, I'm curious. Would you consider being hired by an outlet, even if they you thought of them as having a bias? Because I think most uh, most media outlets do. Um, I think some outlets are better at acknowledging their own bias. Um, or do you want to stay as a freelancer?
1: Um, good question. I I mean, this is something I contemplate with, um, but. The thing is, it's like if I do a freelance piece, if I do a reporting piece and it comes out and I know that, oh, this is more of a liberal angle, not that I'm trying to make it that mm-hmm. but it is, I'll pitch it to a, a liberal publication, um, like like a piece I did on Kanye. I looked at this thing that was happening when he was running, when he broke down um, in South Carolina, I believe. And I wrote the thing. I read it back. I'm like, who would take this? Oh, I think the Daily Beast would take something like this. And they did. And then I, my, my piece, Black Free Thought was way more. um, It was actually, I don't know how you would classify that. I think it is the most independent, like objective piece I have done. And I knew the Daily Beast wouldn't take it. I knew this side wouldn't, like I knew these people wouldn't take it. So I actually just went to journalists or writers that are independent and just looked at publications they've been publishing in and um chloe i forgot her last name starts with a v everyone knows her
0: chloe Um, battery yeah
1: yes she wrote a piece for talent magazine i read it and i'm like it's not the same subject but the tone is kind of the same Mm -hmm. as mine and so i pitched it to them and they took it so that's kind of how i i go about try to get my stuff published but would i work somewhere let's just say that is left-leaning i would have to have a thorough conversation with them yeah uh to see how much um poetic license so to speak i would have on my work if they said no we are left we want it left and that's it then i probably wouldn't do it Mm
0: -hmm. yeah it's interesting i think Fox news is definitely labeled as right wing quite fairly, but I remember uh, a long time ago, I was listening to an interview with Chris Wallace um, who I think of anyone on Fox news is probably, I would say is definitely the most independent and objective journalist there. And he said when Roger Ailes interviewed him, like he didn't make ask Chris to take any sort of ideological angle. Um, and I, I personally am really glad someone like Wallace is at fox news because i think a lot of their work uh has been subject to editorial influence more more so than it should be in my opinion so it's kind of an interesting like at the Mm -hmm. uh, you know like as someone whose main job um isn't journalism like i i really like independent-minded thinkers at you know uh organizations that have a slant um but Mm -hmm. i also see the benefit of just being completely independent so Mm-hmm. um um so i've been listening to uh a lot of your commentary um both your own podcast and other podcast interviews with you and um i think the thing that most resonated with me is the idea of treating someone like they're genuine like they're coming at it from a genuine angle um could you describe a little bit about just how you've come to think that way um in your own process and that
1: well i came to think that way in hindsight, it's actually started, I I would say it would start like right now, but actually in hindsight, when I think about it, it started um, during the last semester when I was at NYU, when I was writing my last uh, piece, which was a polemic, and I was writing it um, critiquing Thomas Chatterton Williams' work um, in general. And the first take I took on it, um, I did not, you know, critique him or analyze his work in a way where I thought he was sincere. I analyzed him as if he was attacking me personally as a Mm -hmm. black individual. Um, And it didn't work out. You know, that piece wasn't great. Like it was, it was well-written. Right. But it, the argument was weak. And when I went back and I looked at it and I told myself, you have to read his stuff as best as you can. Like you're not black and try to be as objective as you can in order for this to work. And when I did that, I mean, obviously I wasn't, you know, I was, it wasn't flawless, but when I did that and I did critique him as if he was completely sincere and he had no vendetta against the black black community or anything like that, it was a personal choice for him. It was way easier for me to do the work and the piece came out to be one of the best pieces during the time I was at NYU. So now as hard as it is, and it's very hard especially when you completely disagree with the person's take on something to Mm -hmm. still critique them as being sincere. And I look at it as, would I want that for me? I I mean, even if I misstep, or even if someone doesn't agree with me, I still would want them to come at me, you know, um, as if I meant what I said sincerely and genuinely. So as cheesy as it sounds, do unto others how you mm-hmm. would want them to so in a way that's what i do and it's hard and there are times where i think i'm doing that and then we back my like, dang, you really went in on this person you should revise this um and it, and it happens but that's the best way to do it because mm-hmm. if you do that you can think more clearly you can be more objective and your emotions won't get in the way of your thoughts so it's better for you
0: yeah um I guess when I've read sort of critiques of the concept of objectivity um, that they've sort of uh, critiqued the fact that the sort of extreme like facts don't care about your feelings or like we're only interested in objective data and you know I personally think that that can go too far because like we as human beings in a sense we're objects we have physical bodies in the world. But also, like, so much of our perception is affected by our culture, um, how others uh, treat us based on um, how they perceive us, how we treat others, how they perceive them. Like, a lot of it is filtered through somewhat of an objective, a subjective lens. And uh, I I think it's important to not ignore that piece of it either. Would you you say that's right? Yeah,
1: for sure. Um, I'm not, I, yeah, I guess it might translate like, just read them like a robot, not at all. <laughs> you need your emotions, of course. And I don't believe in the facts and care. Like, actually, facts don't care about your feelings, but humans should care. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. Um, we're not bodies of facts. We, we're bodies of a lot of things, and emotions is definitely the, the majority of what we are made of. So, but when it comes to actually with analysis of course you want your emotions in it like your passion is why you want to even critique the thing in the first place that's an emotion Mm -hmm. um but i guess to have a an emotion that's kind of glosses over what the person says because you feel like they're attacking something or someone or you i don't think that's helpful like you just have to um Think of it as it's your work you're looking at in a way or, or, you know, like, so that's, this is how I I do it. But yeah, I, I agree. Like you shouldn't negate your feelings out of everything. Um, And no one does. That's the thing. Everyone will say facts don't care about your feelings. The same people that said that were really upset about the facts of the election. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to get this, whatever, but, um, (laughs) this might be toying the line. Let's just leave that back over there. <laughs> but I mean, and you can say that and they, and they were so emotional that they went to the U S Capitol. So when people say that, I'm like, but do you really believe that? Or is it convenient to say that to someone to shut a conversation down? Like, so yeah. Yeah. I think we're seeing the holes in that statement as we go on in time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, I I think, you know, I have uh, friends and family who voted both for and against Trump, and I, I think it's important to realize that whatever you th- think or feel about his language, um, other people have been affected differently, and like, you know, we, we all kind of make an emotional judgment, in part at least, about, you know, who we're voting for, um, mm-hmm. and I mean... <laughs> like the uh, yeah like personally i think moral leadership to some degree is incumbent upon the head of state um and that's what i mean we we have in america is the head of state and the head of government um being the same person but mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 tough at the same time because i i hope we can get to a place where we don't have to treat the president uh like every word that he says with um uh, as a personal affront um i guess that leads me to my next question which i'm just you know biden campaigned on in part on a theme of unity and healing and that's kind of been the message that he's been drilling down on um i don't know if you uh watched the inaugural or not but i'm curious um how you're feeling about just kind of the state of the country after all we've witnessed recently
1: you know i did watch the uh, inauguration i would say i don't i don't know one minute i might say i might be more optimistic and then something happens that i never thought would happen and then I might be cynical, then something great happens. So I keep, I stay a cynical optimistic because like I want to aim high, but then level it out at like a realistic spot. Mm-hmm. I don't think things are going to get better. I just hope it doesn't get like right now. I mean, mm-hmm. um, better in any time soon, but I hope it just doesn't get worse than what we've seen. But with Biden's sentiments about unity is very kumbaya and it's not real. It's not realistic. I know he has to say that as president. And I think actually maybe he had to say that. Um, but realistically with Americans like living day by day, seeing what we see and talking to people that on, this, on our side, on the upside, whatever side, that is, that's not real. And I think that's the problem with America is, we try to romanticize things like unity and we try like, what does that mean though? Like, and I actually did say this, I think I said this in like a YouTube video I did. And then also like, I tweeted this out and I said, we can't unify when we can't even respect each other. Mm -hmm. Like we can't even look at each other side. Like we can't even look at, at each other without, you know, wanting to scream or whatever. So, he, I think respect is something he should have just pushed before mm-hmm. unity. Unity, it's just it almost makes me want to just roll my eyes. Like, really? That's what you're going to say right now? Um. So yeah, I, I don't think things will get better. I hope they won't get worse, but we have to respect each other. That's the first step before we even think about uni- unifying at all.
0: Yeah, I think it's funny. If you try to pick one word, it's almost like well does that word quite capture it uh like when i think of respect I guess i think there are two ways you know respecting someone like uh the office of the president versus the person um or you know respecting someone's basic human dignity versus like their opinions because a lot of times they're people with very unrespectable opinions that shouldn't be you know considered acceptable um so yeah i don't know i think there's Yeah, yeah, there's oh no, I didn't mean to come in. Oh no, it's fine. Um, (laughs) I don't, um, (laughs) yeah, it's it's fine. I think there's always going to be a tension. I guess I was reading, I don't know if you're familiar with Braver Angels, but Mm -hmm. um, I was reading a piece by someone who works for them, uh, and has led like different uh workshops. Um, and they were saying, like, it's important to not just ignore conflict, um, Mm -hmm. and The fact, like, the point of the debates is to have conflict and to say what you actually think and to not um, sort of paper over what you think because you're there to disagree. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, like they mentioned, like, uh, sort of couples therapy is like, you know, when you're in marriage counseling, like, you have disagreements. That's what you're there for. And if you try to be nice about it, like, that's, you're not going to make any progress. Um, So, yeah, I think that's it's always something to keep in mind. Um, But I'm curious how you would uh, describe how your faith relates to your politics. Uh, um, We're both Christians, and I think that that personally is something that America could use right now for people of faith to um, to act like it. Um, Because uh, it's, I don't know, uh, uh, I think religion has been sort of co-opted as like like the christian nationalist uh, like it's there's a subset of white evangelicalism that i think has gone completely off the rails um which mm-hmm. i'm personally disver- disappointed by but um anyway that's a lot of editorializing by me how do you um, relate to politics when it comes to your faith
1: <sighs> so yeah i think i mean that's the that is the foundation to how I go about my writing, my podcasts, whatever I do, um, and how I can say, okay, look at this person with their sincerest, um, look at them sincere before you analyze them, things like that, because of my faith to look at people's humanity first. And it's, I mean, I don't know if I want to get deep with it. I guess I'm not going to go into it all because this is not Sunday. But well, I,
0: I, I kind I of should... want you to, but that's fine. Oh. Like, I mean, I, mean
1: I, I guess I can give an example. Sure. Like, like so so, I like, guess just some background. Like, my dad, he is a preacher, and he um was a assistant pastor for how many years, 30, 40 years in Mm -hmm. my hometown. And then he went off and like started his own church, like like a couple of churches. And then um, within the past, I think 10 years, maybe he's been back at our home church. And, um, but within that time, for me personally, it took me until 24 to really develop a relationship with God. Um, Let's just say I wasn't a great reflection of a christian up until then let's just say mm-hmm. that and when at 24 i realized like i wanted my life to change there's a lot of things happening all negative negative. and when i did that like my life changed and i thought to myself now more so when i look at people and i'm just like what do you like? How could you say this? How can you put this out there? How irresponsible can you be a, as a journalist, as a writer, as an intellect? Blah blah blah. Like I think, but the like the grace I've seen in my life with God and how He's forgiven me seventy-seven times, seven times, um, and how I've fallen short and how um, I didn't deserve any mercy that he gave me and he still gave it to me like why like if he can do that for me someone that does not deserve it at all like give that grace to people like just and who are you not to do that like Mm -hmm. that's still someone god created and that's still someone god died for um even if i'm just like smiling through my teeth at that person like i can't stand you but i can't judge you because i i can't judge you and act like i can um
0: like you're superior to them
1: cast you out Yeah, yeah cast you out as this thing when god hasn't if that makes any sense sure um so that's how my faith has helped me just see people's humanity, and it sounds like a hallmark card, and I know it does. No, I don't think
0: it d- does. I mean, oh,
1: it will to everyone okay. else, but okay. it's the <laughs> facts, and yeah, it's like it is, like it, and it's not easy. That's the thing. Like, people are like might think, oh, you're Christian, and oh, it's easy. But no, it's not. It's so hard. Like I have to be so rebellious against my emotions because. I'm a very direct and whatever person and there'll be times where I'll have to like, just when I'm writing something about someone, I will have to take a couple of days to really just shake off just how much I cannot stand this person. But I'm like, I have to like, it's not easy. It's Mm -hmm. not easy at all, but it always pays off. My faith has helped me with just dealing with things that I have to go through with, um, how I think and how people disagree with me and uh, how people give me that feedback of how they disagree with me in all the ways. Hmm. And it doesn't really actually bother me that much um, just because I've been through a lot worse. But yeah, my faith just helps me to see people as humans. And yeah, I agree. Like that would be a great thing if people if religion more so christianity wasn't so stigmatized as quote unquote the white man's religion Mm -hmm. and something that was used to weaponize people into slavery which it was but that's not what it means to be christian Mm -hmm. that's not what the bible was was for like they manipulate the bible and now it gets this you know horrific stain up until 2021 still but Mm. Now I know, like, when people ask me, like, what what helps you, like, sinner, be objective? I make sure I actually say God um, to bring it more into a human level and to take off how it's been tainted, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, and they're usually not, and they're, they're not shocked, thank God. I'm not, I'm thankful that they're not like, wow, you're a Christian? Like, that would be horrible if they, like, didn't see that at all. Mm-hmm. But when I say that's how I go about thinking, um, that's actually kind of something new for people to hear. Like, oh, I just feel like God's an emotional thing. I'm like, no, actually, He can help you think straight as well. Hmm. So that was long, but that's my answer. No,
0: that was that was great. Thank you um, for sharing that. I think uh, I've been reading a, a couple quotes from Frederick Douglass recently, and he just um, sort of lambasts the hypocrisy of uh, white American Christianity in his time, um, and and it's it's I mean it's very powerful because um, he he talked about how the his own relationship with God and it uh, impacted like his anger about the sin of slavery like he was already angry about it but he got even more angry <laughs> right mm-hmm. like um and i think yeah it's just been very um impactful to read and consider that um and i think like uh, uh i mean it's it's maybe a little uh like oversimplified to say, but I think that the the white church has a lot of a lot to learn from the black church, and um, it that's been my experience anyway with um, uh, just going to churches of a variety of um, uh, different blends. Like um, I've just always uh, impressed and struck by that. Um, I think doctrinally, like if you're not so suffering yourself or suffering with others you're probably doing christianity wrong (laughs) like uh, there's um like uh, you know if you're living a like i think christianity is hard um it's supposed to be hard and if it's easy for you then you probably want to rethink your faith um but uh yeah like you said it's not sunday that's enough preaching um (laughs) i guess i i want to talk with you about um your experience as um like a black lives leader black lives matter leader and organizer um you've talked talked about that before in a couple of podcasts and i think what i'm most interested in is the policy goals that you are advocating for um like going to city hall um because i think like i'm interested in like concrete policy reform to, um, address, Mm -hmm. you know, problems within like, um, like local police, because that's, that's where the issue is. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that would be great.
1: Yeah. So when I was doing black lives, Matter, Columbus in 2016, um, we did focus more on like local level things that are happening and Columbus, Indiana is the hometown of former vice president, Mike Pence. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very conservative Republican. I knew a Black Lives Matter would stir up some stuff. I didn't I didn't start it to stir up things, obviously. Sure. Um, but I was like, that's inevitable. It's going to happen. And actually, before I even like kind of announced it, I made sure that I talked with the mayor. I actually sat with the mayor and we talked and talked with other city officials. I even met with the chief of police. That was interesting. But I was like, I I need to do this thing um, mm-hmm. because I want longevity with this, um, and I want to do some good in my community. So, we mapped out things for our community and what we felt would make sense. And we were not like Baltimore, Ferguson, um, mm-hmm. even Gary, Indiana. Like we were not these 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 cities. Police brutality was not necessarily on our doorsteps when we walked out into this uh, town, but there were internal things that were happening and specifically with our police um, uh, department where I think about, there was five minorities in quotes, which included women as a minority. And I think there was two black men and one Hispanic man and just not enough diversity with one with that. There was other complaints with people had with police and then just a, like a whole negative um, take on race relations in Columbus where we would act like we couldn't even spell racism. If that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. it just was not prevalent in our city. We are a small town. We're diverse. A lot of people have different, you know, colors are here therefore we have no problem with race when really these people work here and they live outside of Columbus, actually and um and so when things would come up dealing with with racist issues locally the black organizations would talk about it the white organizations would talk about it the hispanic organization would talk about it with with their own race when it came to when we come together We'd smile, and just be like, "There's nothing wrong," and all that does is fester, and that makes animosity and thing, and it have it come out in different ways. So I really utilized Black Lives Matter. We had three things, and it was um, reform the police, which really what that was was um, suggest some things that they could implement. One of those was um, raising the age of uh, requirement to become a police officer from 18 to 25, and then we have reasons for that, um, and then some more psychological testing. Uh, what and what are those questions being asked? Um, who's doing the questions? Um, and then internal like check and balances, like with the police reform, the like the police that like that was going on internally in the police department, which made no sense. Um, And also with the police reform board, the person, that the president, we found out was appointed by the chief of police. So we're like, well, that's also not, doesn't make any sense if Mm -hmm. the person that's supposed to be checking, balancing the police is headed, like they're put there by the chief, why? Um, Also the mayor had some say in that, but it was like the chief would offer up names, long thing. and. Then we realized like the person that was president over the police board, they're only supposed to have a four year term, but this person had 20 years there and no one challenged it because no one really knew the information. No one knew. Mm -hmm. I mean, and no one went to these board meetings that were public. A lot of people didn't go to city council meetings that were public. So we decided we need to publicize the city council meetings. We need to publicize the police meetings. And that's the things I would always amplify. Um, at my meetings and talk about it and say we need to show our faces there so they know that people are watching them and they know that we want changes to be made. If you don't show up, why would they change anything? Um, There's no one in the room to challenge them. And also one of our objectives was community unity. So we actually wanted to uh, have events and meetings where we could facilitate dialogue where respectful, unsafe spaces could be there for conversations. And I would say every time we did that, it always, we always left a good note, a a civil note. There were times where it got heated, but like you said, conflicts will ensue. And that's kind of how, you know, when it's authentic and organic, that's what's going to happen. And so, and then also unity or, Yeah, unity and understanding with the police. We wanted the police to get to know the community. We felt like that was a big problem with these police shootings where if the police knew the people that they were targeting, if they, like, let's just say Alton Sterling, which is one of the catalysts of why I even started BLMC and Flannel Castile, but, like, let's just say Alton Sterling was known for selling CDs always in front of this gas station. The gas station owner knew him, didn't care he was out there. Police mm-hmm. got a call and then he was killed. But the thing is, is like if they policed and really under, went and really got to know people in that neighborhood and, and went to that gas station, I'm sure it wasn't like out in the outskirts, it was in right. the center of the city. If they saw him always there, if they got the call, they show up, it's Alton, they could have dealt with it differently they could have okay you know what you can't you can't be out here you know you can't be out here and you can tell them to leave but it wouldn't have went to that because they know him and so that's or they've seen him and they know he's not a threat so that's what we wanted we wanted them to to get to know our faces see us um i would invite them to the blmc um events and meetings i'm like you're more than welcome to come we have nothing to hide and that's a way for you to see who's concerned about what's going on in the nation um, and if they wanted to ask you questions, hopefully you would answer them. So they knew they always had an open invite. Did they come? No. Not to say, like, they didn't want to. I'm not saying that, but they didn't. Um, but we, me and the chief, actually had, like, maybe two conversations. Um, and this was during, like, when Charlottesville happened. I know that we had a conversation mm-hmm. because, you know, we're, things started to happen in our city. White supremacist groups started to pop up. Um, started to hand out flyers in their city. Actually targeted me when they found out who I was. Didn't like me, obviously. And one actually, there's I was getting. I always got all this stuff every, almost every, no, at least three times a week. I would get all these messages. You're this. You're wow. that. Like racial epithets. The thing is, is, I was prepared because I I knew that was gonna happen. And also I tried my best to model BLMC after like Dr. King and the civil rights movement. And and also um, I would be remiss not to say like the Black Panther party with how they, um, you know, organized and had uh, helped out the poor, helped out the homeless and things like that. That's what we did as well. Um, so, But I was just prepared for that. I was like, that's gonna happen. But when this white supremacist, sent me um that was over this group and i'm not gonna say their name but um he sent me a, a inner like an interview i did actually denouncing them saying like they're this they're not taking over our town blah, blah blah don't know how he got this picture of me if how he took pictures off of me off the tv but he did and he made like this like this uh like this storyboard almost and drew me in this racist cartoon, big red lips, big bulging eyes, darkened my skin, and then lured me into, like, this warehouse, and, like, at the end was me being lynched, and he was, like, lynch yourself, you N-word, black eyes don't matter, and I remember he sent that to me, and I was just, like, wow, okay, this is, more serious like i wasn't even like oh this hurts actually i actually was just like i'm actually afraid for my life a bit mm-hmm. because a month prior i was doxed by another white supremacist so i'm like do they know each other do they know where i live like does this person know where i live and i was more afraid for my family it was a big thing so and that just made it more known like okay what we're doing we need to keep doing mm-hmm. um so those were things like concrete level, local things was changing what I said with like the police, with um, with even city officials and challenging why certain things were happening um, in the community and also supporting the National Black Lives Matter. And at, and at that point, they had clear objectives. The number one was anti-police brutality, not, anti-police, anti-police brutality. Very clear, that's the number Mm -hmm. one thing. Um, And then they also had like invest and divest. And they also had like, you know, uh, about education and things like that. Like, But number one was on their their site. Um, Now it's different. But anyway, that was my time with BLMC. And I'm very happy we did it. Proud of everyone that was there and I'm happy that taught me so much and i believe that is why when i write the things about critiquing people that i don't feel have my community and their best interests i'm Mm -hmm. coming with experience and i feel like it gives me more weight in the game in a a sense yeah so
0: absolutely um thank you for sharing all of that So closing question for the podcast is, can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from your critics and you thought, you know, you might have a point.
1: Wow. That's every day. No kidding. That's every, well, I mean, it's not bad if it's every day, but I would say the number one thing is so, and now it's very sticky, but I would say this with, the idea of freedom of speech because i i say i'm a very big you know proponent for it one because being a writer you don't want to have in mind that like certain words certain things certain phrases whatever you can't say and that just Mm -hmm. that's going to do something with how you think you're going to it's going to um, be in the way. It's gonna roadblock stuff. Like I can't even think that because I can't say that. So why even like put down the table? It's just frustrating. Also, certain things need to be said even if it's offensive. And that's subjective right there. But mm-hmm. whatever. But as time goes on, I'm just like, you know, this is more complicated because when people would, you know, if I wouldn't be in conversation or debate about freedom of speech, you know, I make my case and make it very clear and the person opposing that would make their case and make it clear, but I always felt like, but freedom of speech is good for you too. It's always good for everyone. But now I'm thinking maybe they have a point with certain people having the reins of freedom of speech are just irresponsible. And it's but it's hard to say who can dictate who can talk. Mm-hmm. It's it's such a complicated thing. It's free speech is our number one, that's our first amendment right. Like everyone has the right to that. But as we've seen, and especially this conversation come up with Twitter mm-hmm. when Donald Trump was banned, a lot of people were clapping. I wasn't clapping, not to say I'm like, no, I love his tweets. Don't love his sweets, never follow them. Um, but I was like, this is going to be bad. Like one, I was like, this is going to be bad because even if he can't talk on Twitter, they're going to find a way to, to listen to him, to communicate. It's going to, it's just going to be maybe more underground or not in our face. I'm like, would we, Mm -hmm. do we want it in our face though? Should we actually want to see what the conversation are and who are having it? To block that is not to get rid of it. You're actually yeah. hiding it from. So the thing. So I'm going on a tangent, and I didn't even get to the answering it. I am second guessing the whole notion of,
0: of free speech absolutism. Yes. Yeah.
1: I yeah. I am because I'm. It's now, and I've and I've always kind of in the back of my mind was like yeah, but I always was like ninety percent like no, you have to let people speak. But now I'm like, but
0: maybe yeah. I mean, something yeah, to consider. I, yeah. All right. Um, that was all I had. Thank you so much for coming on. You might have a point.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care.